Welcome to the Reclaim Your Rise podcast. My name is Lauren Bongiorno, a nationally board-certified health coach and founder and CEO of Risely Health, where we help people and families impacted by type 1 diabetes take ownership over their lives so that they can transform with more freedom and confidence. Everyone has a different reason to be here. You might be seeking knowledge, support, or community, but at your core, I know that you long for something deeper. You're here for transformation. And that's what the Reclaim Your Rise podcast is all about. That is really the number one thing that any therapist, I think, needs to just be able to, to convey to their clients. And so, and so on the flip side, if I'm speaking to a patient who's about to embark on therapy, I think what I would recommend in terms of how you bring the accuracy of living with diabetes into the relationship with the therapist who maybe has never had a client like that before and doesn't have diabetes themselves is to really focus on that on the feelings and the, your your experiences and the emotions that are attached to everything that surrounds your living with diabetes a quick reminder before we start the show that nothing you hear on the Reclaim Your Rise podcast should be a substitute for personalized professional medical advice. Please always consult your physician or other medical professional before making any changes to your diet, insulin dosages, or healthcare plan. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Reclaim Your Eyes podcast. That clip was from our guest of the show today, Dr. Alana Dumont. I loved having her on to start the conversation around mental health and how closely tied it is to living with type 1 diabetes. To give you more of a background into who Dr. Dumont is, she is a New York State licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in working with children, teens, and adults with mood and anxiety disorders. She also has a special interest in treating individuals and families with chronic illness. Dr. Dumont was previously the clinical director of the trauma program at the Child and Family Institute and now works as a private school psychologist and runs her own private practice in New York. Dr. Dumont was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes herself when she was 22 years old and is a passionate member of the Risley Medical Advisory Board to help improve patient outcomes and improve the diagnosis journey from a mental health perspective. And we are so lucky to have her on our board and so lucky to have her on the podcast today. In this episode, we talk about the emotions around getting diagnosed as an adult or just a new diagnosis in general, navigating anxiety and stress that comes with living with type 1 diabetes, how to get the most out of working with a therapist or psychologist who doesn't 100% get your diabetes piece, and also parenting a child with type 1 diabetes. So yes, parents of T1D kids, this episode is for you too. On that note, let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Dumont and let's rise. Alana, I'm so excited that you're going to be on as a guest today. How are you feeling? I, I mean, aside from the lack of sleep with my newborn, I'm feeling happy to be here. It's a good distraction. <laughs> I know, guys. Alana just had a baby five weeks ago, and I was like, Alana, like in the future, you can come on the podcast. And she's like, this is fun for me. This isn't work. Like, I'll come on whenever you want. So we have had so many requests for mental health episodes and I think this is going to be such an interesting episode because you have a personal experience of living with type 1 diabetes and you have the professional experience of being a psychologist. So where do you want to start? I think let's dive into getting diagnosed as an adult. So mm -hmm. you were diagnosed as an adult. I know I've heard you say that you it was a complete breakdown. You like moved back in with your mom for a few weeks. Can you just set that scene and give a little bit of an insight into what that was like? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've shared pieces of it with you, you know, when we first started connecting. Um, but, and you have a good memory. It was, it was exactly that. I was, I was 22 years old living in on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, you know, just kind of like getting my life together. And then, um, slowly over a couple of months, I was experiencing, I think the classics, like the textbook symptoms of type one diabetes, but I really, you know, it's not as common to be diagnosed um, as an adult. And slowly, slowly, it just got worse and worse and worse to the point that I was in DKA in the hospital for about a week. Um, I think initially it was very, um, you know, fight or flight, adrenaline kicking in, like having to learn this whole new language, which, um, you know, my, my type A personality was really good at doing that. And then um, I think, you know, the, the biggest fear was actually like being released from the hospital and like this feeling of like, why are you letting me leave right now? Like now my whole life is different and I have to figure this out. And so I actually ended up moving back home with my parents for about um, five, six weeks. And, and and like I've shared with you, it really was this this regressive feeling of, oh, I'm, I'm like being taken care of again, like like as if I'm a baby. And, you know, in the hospital, I was in the ER um, before I was actually admitted. And they were trying to, I think, first just figure out kind of what was going on. Because again, not as common when you're a young adult. And we, my mom, and I'll never forget, my mom and I were laying in the ER tiny little bed um, overnight. And some nurse came in and pulled the curtain. And she's like, we only let this in pediatrics. And my mom was like, well, this is my baby. So I'm not going anywhere. And I was sure as hell not letting her leave me either. Um, and yeah, and it really was, you know, this, this relinquishing of control and just kind of letting my parents take care of me for a little while until um, they kind of pushed me back out there, I think really is what it was. You know, I, I had this apartment, I was about to start graduate school and they were, you know, I, I don't know that I would have ever said I'm ready to move back out now. It was really a scary time if I'm being totally honest. Mm -hmm. um, and I needed that like tough love push a little bit, I think, to get back into my life. Right. And I mean, 22. So you must have just graduated college. Is that right? Yeah, I I was out of college. I was about to start my doctorate in psycho clinical psychology, and I was living in the city with roommates. Um, and yeah, young adult, and just trying to figure out my next steps. And that's and then this curveball in the summer just before school was starting. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, my belief is that no matter what age you're diagnosed, there's some kind of challenge that comes with it, right? But there's different set of challenges depending on if you're diagnosed as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, you know, middle of life, later on in life. But we, I, I was going through my DMs actually after the podcast launch and there was somebody, her name was Allie, and she DM'd me and she said, I am 25. I just got diagnosed seven months ago and I would love to hear more about all of just adult onset and all the challenges that I'm going through right now. And so she had listed off a few, which was like loss of my previous self, feeling like I did something wrong, complete switch of like decades long of eating habits, dealing with T1D while having a family and career, right? So what, what did you find the most challenging? Yeah, I mean, basically everything you just said that she shared, I, I totally agree with what you just said in, in that I think the challenges are dependent on your age and kind of what stage of life you're in. I lived 22 years without it, right? And so, and then all of a sudden, this is handed to me and it's really learning a completely different lifestyle. Granted, I was 
pretty um, active and I actually, my mom happens to be a dietitian, ironically. And so I had somewhat of an understanding of what like healthy eating looks like. You know, I knew what a carbohydrate was. I think that for my diet, for my um, endocrinologist and my CDE that I started meeting with, it was, it was kind of nice for them because I definitely had more of a background than I think most newly diagnosed patients. But even with that being said, like learning how insulin and my blood sugars are impacted when I wanted to run Central Park. And that was something I did daily when I was living in the city. And then all of a sudden I had to remember to bring my glucose tabs with me and I wasn't on a pump yet. So do I want to eat something? Do I want a bolus for something? You know, it was just the thinking I think was kind of exhausting at the beginning for me, like how many things I had to remember. to. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people without diabetes don't realize that it's it's truly a minute to minute thing that you need to keep in mind. And for us, I, I think, you know, people like you and me and other people, you know, that, that do live with it, we we're, we, it's become second nature, right? Like we, we think about it, but it's not in that same stressful way that I thought about it in the beginning. But I think the, these things like the, the, the person I was before, and then, and then how do I still take parts of that with me, but now with this also. And like I said, I loved jogging. I, I, I liked, I was about to start graduate school. Like how are, how are these things going to go? And I want to continue doing a lot of these things. And can I continue doing all of these things? Right. And so I think that those were probably some of the hurdles I was dealing with. And then just emotionally too, just, I would constantly ask myself like, should I be grateful that it took until now to get this diagnosis? Or is it better to live your whole life from day one so that you don't know any different? Like you're really grappling with a lot of questions, I think, at the beginning. Yeah. And I'm so curious how much of the beginning, let's say, year was you being in it versus maybe a balance of you also analyzing yourself because you had that psychology background and you were going to school for it. And so much of, you know, trauma and life changes is you know, that's the work that you were studying, right? So what was that What was that like for you of, of being in it versus watching it and be like, oh, it's so interesting that this is how I'm responding to this or this is a fear that's coming up for this? Right, so, so I think you're really taking me back, Lauren, right now. So if I remember, I'm trying to remember, I think at the beginning, like I, like I said, it was, it was a real um, very, very like, hypervigilant and always, and like you said, being in it, right? Like I was obsessive at the beginning, writing down every blood sugar, every carb count that I was eating. And I, like I said, I wasn't on a pump right away. And I would be, and I was starting this, this graduate program and I would be sitting in class and thinking like, am I low right now? Am I not? And I, it was, it was very nuanced, I think for me at the beginning. And I don't think I really let myself have the feelings until I had more of the logistics under control, if, if that makes sense. And so then it sort of became, oh, I'm going out tonight and I'm feeling nervous about this. Like I, I, you know, I have one part of my routine under control. Like I've learned how to take the subway from the city to the Bronx where my graduate school was um, and manage my numbers that way. But can I manage them like going out to dinner with friends tonight? You know, and it was, and those were, I think the moments that I would feel the feelings, right. And like get frustrated and feel nervous or upset that I, that I have to handle this in addition. Right. And so um, yeah, I think I think that it was it was a lot of both of the things that you're that you're describing. And then and just 
I think the understanding really became more as I moved through the program and learned more about all of these concepts and how one handles trauma, right? I didn't really know at the beginning. I knew I was I wanted to be a psychologist. I think I learned why later on, even though I was already on that path, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I guess what was, how long did it take you to get to a place of feeling more independent or actually I don't even want to use the word independent more so like comfortable with this new self of your of yours in this new life I'm not gonna lie I don't know if this is what people want to hear it took time it definitely took time I I don't know that I can necessarily even put a number on it I think that it changed over time also I think that you know at the beginning it was very much like it was the full focus of of my life right and then and then i start this program and i and i entered therapy myself just kind of thinking you know i just got handed this really big thing i should probably like and i had been in therapy before you can't i'm sorry you can't say you want to be a psychologist and not be on the other side of the, <laughs> of the room for a little bit and so i had been in therapy before but you know at the time i wasn't and i said it's probably a good idea to like get back into it and I did, and I think this might be a weird way of answering your question. I think what ended up happening is I barely talked about it in therapy at a certain point. And I guess that might be the indicator that I I was okay, you know, and me I, I would say it was about a year a year in. And and granted, this wasn't the only thing on my plate, you know, like I like I keep saying, I I was uh, starting to embark on my career and and train be trained in it and I had a lot going on and a lot of pressure from that end and so there were other stressors in my life and I think I just learned how to respond to stress maybe in that year and then by I would say a year by the end of that year I don't think I was talking about it that much anymore mm. and that and that may be a good indicator that I was it was integrating and you know what's so interesting too I everybody's journey is different, right? And for me, when I was diagnosed at seven, as a child, you don't really know what's going on, right? So you're just thrown into the gauntlet. And my processing didn't happen until about 15 years later when I started looking back. And that's when I started talking about it more and processing things on myself and journaling and being like, wow, like that is how that connected to my self-esteem. Or when I was giving a presentation about diabetes to my fourth grade class and that kid in the front row who I had a crush on, I saw him laughing and talking to his friend, like how that impacted me, like all these little moments uh, that you kind of you know, string together. And so I think everybody's journey is different for you. It was a year and then I'm sure new challenges came up after that. Um, but for some people, it may be immediate inter survival. They maybe push it away. They don't want to deal with it. And then, you know, years later, something can come up. Well, I think I think the longer answer to your question, which I didn't know if we were going to go in that direction. Oh, yet, we're going any direction you want. <laughs> you know, it, it comes and goes, if I'm being honest, right? Like, I think it took me about a year to, because I was an adult, so it really, I had to take a lot of autonomy over the management of it. And then, and then I got engaged to my to my now husband, and I, I'll never forget my my. I had a, an A one C done. Um, it was like three weeks before my wedding, and I remember my endocrinologist was like, "Oh wow, you're it's it's a seven point two. And I was like, "Ah," oh, and she's and I think I said something about getting married. She goes, "Oh, you're getting married in a few weeks. Oh, all right, don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll deal with it after, right?" And like I was like, "Yeah, right." Like and and I think also that moment for me was very much like. Yes, like this, like I have to also learn to to kind of temper some of my expectations and some of my own 
maybe perfectionist qualities around this where there are going to be life events that I'm not going to be able to control every single nuance of this mm. and I kind of just have to do my best sometimes and then and then even taking it a step further you know I just had a baby about a month ago this is my third child and each time I'm pregnant I go through a, a new set of kind of like the grief process almost of like it's one thing to have to manage my diabetes for my own health and make sure I don't have any complications later on in life but during those nine months of pregnancy i'm i'm really doing it for somebody else right and like that's really where the stress comes in where every number it's like it's like a twinge of like ooh, did, did he feel that just now like mm. is he okay in there right now you know and it's and it's really it, it's very over it's very overwhelming and i think you know once i each each of the three times i've given birth and there's this relief when they take this baby out of my body because it's like okay now I'm just back to me again, right? Like right. he's out of me. I had a boy, by the way. I mean, you knew, you knew that. Oh, I know. <laughs> so, I know. He's adorable for anybody he's, listening. Oh my he's gosh. He's cutie, and and he's out, and I'm much happier with him out than in, and and for this this reason is the main reason, right? Like I don't have, you know, there's so many things to worry about in parenthood once they're out of you, but as you know. I don't have to worry that my blood sugars are impacting him anymore. And and that's, that is a true relief. It's a lot of pressure. And I mean, there's a lot of pressure with diabetes in different stages in, in general, right? For you, the, the most recent one was pregnancy. And I, I have a stat that the average people that, sorry, the average rating of people entering a Risely coaching program we have them rate their fulfillment on these eight pillars, these eight different areas. And for the area of stress and anxiety management, the average rating is a four out of 10. Mm. And it's not the best representation of the entire T1D population and how they feel with stress and anxiety because obviously these people are reaching out because they need help. But I, yeah. there definitely is a correlation between stress and anxiety and blood sugar and diabetes management you know, and mental health as a whole because oftentimes people are coming to Risely for the combination of the stress and anxiety management piece um, and the diabetes management piece and, and everything is connected. So what's your take on that number? So it's a four out of 10, meaning 10 is-, is 10 is like you're so fulfilled in terms of managing your stress and anxiety throughout the day, throughout your life with diabetes, you feel good. And so zero being like zero, you know, not feeling fulfilled in this area. So average rating is a four. Oh, okay, yeah. So, so I was clarifying because a lot of times, like you said, I'm a clinical psychologist. When I give my clients a like a measurement scale, it's usually ten is like you are severely anxious. So okay, so is that is good to clarify. <laughs> yes. So in terms of how they feel management wise, they're on a four. So that's like you know towards the lower end of how they're feeling. I I I don't think I'm that surprised, but I'm I'm relieved to hear that they're reaching out for help, I think, is like, I think what it, what my, my reaction to that is they're aware that th this is not a good place to be in and they've found the right resources for that. I think, like we keep saying, I think whether you just got diagnosed or you're 10 years in and not satisfied with your management and looking for more help, there, there is that risk of, of feeling unfulfilled, let's say, like you said, in, in other aspects of your life because of this diagnosis may be hindering that um, or just feeling simply stressed and just trying to keep it all together with this. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, I'm not so, super surprised. Um, were you surprised? Are you surprised? I mean, surprised? I think four is, a, it, I think it's pretty low, right? But yeah. it's, 
everything's connected, right? And so if you're, and we've talked about this before, when we were developing the Cornerstone classes together on the acceptance and diabetes one and the burnout one, we were talking about how your mood and your energy and your mindset is you know, impacts your blood sugar numbers and your blood sugar numbers impact that. And so if your management isn't in a great place, you're not feeling confident, you know, working out and your numbers are spiking and they're all over the place, or um, you're not, you know, when you're outside of your routine or your work schedule is shifting, your numbers are, you know, all over the place, right? Like that is going to directly correlate to maybe how you're feeling anxiety-wise, stress-wise, energy-wise, mood-wise, all of it. And I don't know if everybody makes that strong enough of a correlation because I, I know I didn't. I thought I was a moody teenager for, you know, and I definitely like was to a degree, but the majority of my life, it was just mood swings and I was tired all the time. So what is the connection between anxiety and stress and diabetes management in your opinion um, and how that could be improved by improving your blood sugars? So, right. So this is something that, you know, in, in my um, guest appearances in your family program, we do, we, we touch upon this, right? Because a lot of what I practice in my, in my clinical work is cognitive behavioral psychology with um, anxiety in general, not necessarily related to diabetes. But what we often say is that we have a feeling, it's, it's connected to a thought, which is then connected to a behavior. It's like this trifecta and they all, and that's the, like the foundation of CBT. And they all affect each other. You can start with one, change one, and then the other two will kind of follow. And it doesn't even really matter which one. There's, it really is, it's preference sometimes. Like it's easier for me to work towards changing a thought, which will then affect a feeling and a behavior. And I'll, I'll give an example. But I think, let's say starting with anxiety, which would be the feeling, right? And how do we feel when we're anxious? We could feel racy and we feel stressed and tense and all those, a stomach ache, a headache, whatever it is that you feel physically and what you feel emotionally when you're experiencing anxiety. And a thought that might go along with that is, let's say I'm terrible at taking care of my diabetes or this number means that I'm going to have complications because of my diabetes in the long run or, you know, just kind of these very negative thought patterns that we see that come along with anxiety. And what's the result of that? Sometimes it would end up leading to further disengagement with your management, right? So maybe even worse blood sugar numbers. But again, if we were to change one of those things, so let's say we we take a thought and change it to, I'm having a, 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 bad, a bad number, let's say, today, doesn't mean the rest of my day needs to be like this. It doesn't mean my A1C at my next doctor's appointment is going to be impacted by this one day, that in turn will likely relieve some of the tension that we're feeling and hopefully lead to behaviors that are aligned with better blood sugar numbers. Um, and that's sort of how we'd work out that type of example. But all that to just say is that, you know, it's it's valid to have these feelings and these thoughts. It totally makes sense. And I think before even attempting to change any of them, you kind of have to give yourself that break. But to then also understand that there is strong connection between these three things. Yeah. And I think that it's in creating to what I'm hearing space, right? Like space to be aware because oftentimes we see the number on our CGM or, you know, a blood sugar, um, you know, on our meter and we automatically just start to go into that negative loop pattern of, oh my gosh, I made that decision again. You're so bad. You're wrong. Why did you do that? All of that. But if you create more space between those two things of here's the number, 
let me take a pause. I'm recognizing these thoughts coming up, but how can I reframe it? That's when you start on the track of not being so attached to the numbers and in, de- in, in determining your self-worth, but looking at, as, looking at it as data or feedback. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. And I, I, like I said, I can, I can lend a thousand of my own examples, but being that I literally just went through a, a big mind roller coaster the last nine months, you know, and I had to keep reminding myself, you've done this before, right? Like this is, this is your third pregnancy and you've had bad numbers in your other pregnancies and you have two healthy children that are already thriving. And just because you have this bad number today doesn't mean that this baby is going to be hurt because of it. You know, it's a lot of talk, self-talk. But I think, like you said, the most important thing is to be able to see a number, but pause and not let it send you into a spiral. And it's much easier said than done, obviously. But I think the more practice you you do and get with that, the easier it eventually becomes. Yeah, we see that all the time with clients. And what we do on our applications for when people apply to coaching programs at Risely is there's a lot of mental health screening questions, right? Because I think every single person with diabetes has some kind of distress or mental health challenge, right? It's just a spectrum, right? Same thing with disordered eating. We check the boxes just by counting carbs, having to think about our next meal, what like right. already of that, but it's it's that spectrum. So where would you say in your professional opinion, um, people should be mindful of seeking mental health professionals like yourself, where they fall in, in terms of maybe their thought processes around their diabetes or how they're feeling from day to day? Like when does it tap into that like diabetes burnout or depression and what signs can people look for? Right. I think that's a great question. I think, you know, especially like if we were to use the example of a newly diagnosed person, right, there's a whole host of things that they have to learn. And so in that sense, you know, I think everybody could benefit from from mental health support. So don't. So let me actually preface with that. But obviously, resources are in play and, um, you know, priorities, time commitments, 100%. So I think obviously in that sense, the first the first step would be to get to get more of the educa- the diabetes direct diabetes education the way we would diagnose any mental mental illness is using criteria of the of the ex- actual diagnosis but to also look at distress and impairment so meaning when we say that we mean how distressing are these feelings to the person are they are they kind of like beyond what we would consider normal and how much is it impairing their daily functioning so looking at, you know, depending on the age of the person, but are they are they going to school? Are they getting their schoolwork done? Are they, you know, going to work every day? Are they able to continue doing activities that they enjoy or, or bring them joy? And, and once you kind of see that those things are, you know, being hindered, that's kind of a signal that maybe you need more of a mental health support. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And also, like I said, how distressing are these feelings to the person? Are they like consuming their entire day, their entire week? And I think that those are kind of the two things to look at um, when deciding what what somebody needs. Yeah. And I think coming back to that rating, you know, when people come in on average, like I said, getting giving a four out of 10 rating, our average when they leave the program is an eight out of 10. And so, which is incredible, right? But it's that holistic perspective. And the caveat is, is that sometimes what people will realize, if we can't realize, you know, before they're coming into the program, because sometimes it is hard to screen every angle and sometimes somebody doesn't realize it until halfway through a program, is 
when their diabetes management starts to improve and their numbers and all of that and yet still the anxiety and stress stays the same that's when it's like okay let's look at what else could be going on here and it and a lot of the times what we what we see alana is it's other life things happening too it's unhappiness in career unhappiness in relationships and sometimes it's hard to tell is this diabetes related is this life related and it kind of all gets you know like mushed together so interesting and and i think that that's that's a great framework for it all right like it's we've we've conquered this piece and you're still feeling the way that you're feeling so so what's going on with you yeah, yeah. exactly so on this note you know we have seen a really big trend of constantly hearing from people with diabetes that they have a hard time finding mental health professionals that are able to actually help them with their anxieties around diabetes because in their opinion they don't feel like the mental health professional, the therapist or psychologist fully can relate to the diabetes aspect. And in my opinion, it shouldn't be like that because if you're, you know, working with clients in with anxiety or with PTSD or traumas, things like that, it should on paper, right, be like you can work with somebody with diabetes and help them. But there's this like relatability aspect that that gets in the way. So you are, you know, a dime a dozen where there's not a lot of psychologists that have type 1 diabetes. But so what would you say to people who are working with mental health professionals that maybe don't get the diabetes piece 100%? Like, what how can they get the most out of their meetings with their therapists or doctors my gosh that is such a good question because you know it, it and as a psychologist it, it does make me think right because i don't have every issue that my clients have right that i see mm-hmm. i i see people with all different stressors that of course i can't experience every single one of them right and i think like the number one thing that you're taught as a psychologist well you can't teach empathy right well you you can teach it to your kids and you hope to but as adults right like we we we've talked about empathy so much in graduate school in training in in schools now and that is really the number one thing that any therapist i think needs to just be able to to convey to their clients and so and so on the flip side if i'm speaking to a patient who's about to embark on therapy, I think what I would recommend in terms of how you bring the accuracy of living with diabetes into the relationship with the therapist who maybe has never had a client like that before and doesn't have diabetes themselves is to really focus on that on the feelings and the, your your experiences and the emotions that are attached to everything that surrounds your living with diabetes. Because I think that any therapist should be able to well, not any therapist, but a good therapist should be able to work with those clients that are really opened about what it feels like to live with this. Because again, I can't say it enough times that you're it, it's it's really hard to it would be very hard to find a therapist with type one diabetes to be able and who knows if that's even necessarily the right way to go anyways, right? Like it's every person with diabetes, it's it's always the best to to you meet, you see someone at the beach who's wearing a pod and then you're wearing your pod and you're like, oh, hey, you know, and you have this like instant connection with the person. But that's not necessarily what therapy should be anyways, right? Like therapy is about learning to cope. It's about learning to identify your feelings, express your feelings, um, manage the feelings. And I think that if you make that the focus, um, I think that is the way to get the most out of it. 
Yeah, I actually, I agree with that because a lot of people who come through our programs also have psychologists or therapists, or I don't want to say a lot, but a good majority of people who are really struggling with the stress and anxiety, we we come from that interdisciplinary approach and that being the thing that's going to you know move the outcomes forward to where they want to be. Um, and sometimes working on the specific diabetes pieces right in our programs and having if it's a group coaching program that community aspect that fills one need that they have that they're almost trying maybe to get from their therapist or psychologist that is not really no one's really going to give you that piece right and so understanding what your needs are and who the best person or um you know angle is to get that from i think is important yeah i mean that's why i love risley and i love what you're building because you literally can get it all. Um, but like you said, I think that for a diabetic, there's two, like uh, for a type one diabetic that's also struggling, let's say with mental health um, challenges, there's there's both of those things and there's, and it's two different needs and you can get the identification and, and you know, validation from other people that struggle with similar things. But in terms of, of your therapy, it's a, it's a different need that you're feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. Absolutely. Both are really important if you have you know, access to that. Um, and on that note, so you've been on our medical advisory board for almost a year now, and I can't believe it. It was, oh gosh, meeting you. I've never been on a board before. <laughs> I know. Well, you were, I mean, we formed a relationship and so quickly I was like, Alana needs to be on the board. Like she just gets it. She is, I'm just outside of everything. I just adore you. But I'm curious to hear, since you've been on the board, what gap from your angle do you think that we're filling? And just like your perspective of of everything that we're doing. I think this holistic approach, I mean, it's they're, they're, it's so simple and and so complex, right? But that it's it's like, of course, once that, once now that I'm involved in this, like, of course. But you know what's so funny? And I shared this with you, I think, in like our first meeting. I don't know if you remember, but when I started my degree and I was just diagnosed and I was on the road to become a psychologist, and it's a very long road, by the way. And I said, I said, I need to somehow use this. Like, I have to use this experience in in a way that I can I could fill both, right? And And the only thing I was able to come up with was that my dissertation was on parenting a child with type 1 diabetes and which parenting style would be the most effective so that your child is compliant. And it didn't feel like enough, but you know, life happens and I I went into different roles as a psychologist, I work in a school, I have a private practice. And then you and I connected like you said about a year, year and a half ago, and I was following you just as a diabetic. I I just I loved your your Instagram like you you were athletic you did yoga all these things that I liked to do also and so I just liked following you but then we connected on a professional level and this was what it is that I that I wanted to do and I don't have the 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 coaching but the health coaching background I don't have a medical background but this is where I feel like I can fill fill that role for for what's needed in the community right where you're literally taking every single piece and putting it together uh, for 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 somebody who is is struggling and and needs more support and it's like coming to this program you you can just get so much out of it and I mean just the ratings that you just shared about going from the four to the eight like it's it's all right there you know it's it's literally in the data so I and that's that's the, the best evidence you can get yeah no I I I, I think 
it really is like in your life path, like it was meant to circle back to here. And I think it's a good segue to talk about parents because I know Mm -hmm. that this podcast obviously is going to be a lot for type ones, but we want to give, you know, information and education and relatability for parents living with uh, children with type one diabetes. So you've coached inside a few of our family group coaching programs as a guest. And I think that we've talked about this and coach Trista too, but what we've observed together that I want to get your take on is parents, they seem to have want their child to be confident and make the best decisions and all of this. But at the same time, they are scared to like send them off to, let's say, sleepaway camp or they're taking them out of sports because there's, you know, soccer games were making them higher going low. So I want to talk about like what the best mindset approaches are for parents who are trying to balance that, trying to balance. I want my kid to be independent and live the best unrestricted life with diabetes, but I'm also scared and I'm also anxious for them. Yeah. So, so the, the first thing I want to say is valid, right? All of those feelings that a parent would experience. And now I'm a parent myself and just, just every, every decision you make for your kids is like, am I doing the right thing? Are they going to be okay? The hardest thing as a parent is watching a child struggle with anything. And again, I was in a, I was a young adult. My mother had to sleep with me in the emergency room because, and, and now that I'm a parent myself, I get it, right? Like I, I get why she did that. And it's, it's this very, um, it's like an animalistic feeling of wanting to protect your, your child. It's evolutionary, right? It's all about survival and literally all about survival when it comes to a medical diagnosis. So I want to start by saying that, of course, you have these feelings. And I think like we keep saying, it's the first step is just recognizing that you have the feeling, pausing and telling yourself, it makes sense I have this feeling. This is really, this is a really hard thing that I have to help out and, and manage right now and face right now. And then taking it to the next step is is knowing and understanding the way stress actually works. And when something is scary or uncomfortable, our natural instinct is to withdraw or avoid or just get rid of this feeling that we're having that's really uncomfortable. So if you think about what you just said, you know, you you have a child who wants to play on the soccer team and you're afraid to send them because you're afraid that they're going to have a low blood sugar or a high blood sugar, or maybe someone's going to make fun of them because of, because of their insulin pump on their body or whatever it is. Maybe the easier thing is to just not send them at all, right? Like, let me just get rid of this feeling and we'll all just stay home on a Sunday and, and not even do this. But what, so, so what is that, what's that doing then, right? Like you're, you're actually feeling better in the moment but it's not going to going to help you feel better in in the long run. It's like a little band-aid for that feeling and it makes it actually bigger for the next time you're going to be faced with a decision for your child about what to do. And then the other thing it's doing is it's actually modeling for your child that you don't believe that they can do it. And at the beginning our kids our kids gain confidence not by us giving them all this praise for things but modeling for them that we believe in them it's actually like a very like nuanced distinction right of course as parents we're going to tell our kids they're great and doing a great job all the time but but showing them we believe in you is actually where they they get confidence from and when we're faced with a challenge is also where we get confidence from not just by cruising through life right so if if they're going to do something that's hard whether they're successful or not your child might go to the soccer game and still have a low blood sugar and then treat the low blood sugar and feel good about that and that's a success too right and so it's 
it's kind of finding this balance. And this is where, you know, your own coping skills for stress and anxiety are super important and telling yourself, yes, this is scary. Yes, this is stressful. And we can do this, right? And we will figure this out. And it might not be perfect the first time, but we're going to keep trying. Um, and, and again, the main thing is that if your goal for your child is independence and confidence, then pushing them to do these things is really where they're going to gain that. Oh my gosh. There's, I have, I'm having like a mental notes list in my head of like, okay, we'll talk about that, touch on that, touch on that. We can have a whole other episode because you said so much, but some things that I want to highlight in there are number one, you, as much as the focus is on your child with diabetes and their journey, also look at your journey, right? And like how this is impacting you as a human, you as a parent, and how you're navigating the feelings and the anxious feelings and not wanting to project it back on them. And that's one thing. Another thing I, I heard was focus less on the outcome and more on the process. Yeah. Because that's a big piece. We yeah. work with a lot of people who were diagnosed as kids and they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And so much of what they're doing now is undoing the habits that were created as kids, which a lot of them are, I was praised when my numbers were in range and I was not yelled at for my blood sugar being high, but like, you know, well, you're 350, you must have not bolus. What did you do? What's going on here? And that shame that comes with it and that's built in because of that. And so if we focus less on the outcome and more of the, yeah, you went low during that soccer game, but you recognized it, you felt it without the CGM or whatnot, you came off the field, you had juice, and then you got right back on. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yes, all of that, right. I I, I couldn't agree more. And I really identify with, with what you're saying about, um, and again, I'll say it a thousand times, I was an adult, but even, you know, at your, at doctor's appointments, it's like running through the numbers and you're they're like, well, what happened here? I don't know. It was a day, right? Like that was just a day. And and it's this this it's I think it's also learning to just undo that feeling of judgment also. Mm -hmm. And as a parent, all the more so, you know, you have you have so much guilt as a parent to begin with and then and then layer this on top of it, it's it's learning to neutralize it a little bit. Yeah, and I think you you have even given an analogy in our family group coaching program. It was I would love for you to say because I'm gonna butcher it, but it was about a bench, and it was about how, you know, when you're a parent, I'm I'm not, but from all my friends and family members, and you know, hearing from you and what that's, and also the parents that we work with in the programs and what that's like is you just want to take away the pain, right? Like you yeah. just want to protect your baby and your child and take away the pain. But this is something that you can't, right? And you can't put the pressure on yourself to get it right all the time because even as a type one, we don't get it right all the time. So the the analogy, which I'll let you you know, go through, I think could be really helpful for, for parents as a reframe of their job and their role in their child's life. Yeah, absolutely. So so first of all, I can't even take credit for the analogy. I, I have to say that my I do a lot of parenting in my private practice, parent coaching, not again, not necessarily related to having a child with diabetes, just having a toddler, dealing with tantrums, dealing with adolescent ch children. Um, and so I was trained for this parenting program through Becky Kennedy, who um, founded Good Inside. It's on Instagram also. And so her her metaphor is this is this like feelings bench, she calls it. And 
imagine like your child is sitting on a park bench. Every different bench is a different emotion, let's say. And let's say your child is sitting on on the sadness bench of of feeling just despair and disappointment with with their diabetes and you know everything that has to do with it. And again, like instead of of trying to convince out of that feeling, which like you said so beautifully just now, Lauren, that yeah, like all we want to do is take away pain from our kids. When we take away, when we try to take away pain, we're actually stealing from them this opportunity to build a coping skill mm. for pain and sadness and stress and, and frustration, all of that, right? So if if you know when my daughter comes home and says. Uh, her friend, you know, was was mean to her that day, and I tell her, well, then tomorrow you just say X Y Z. That's really not helping her. If she asks me what she should do, that's a whole other story. But if she's just coming home to tell me, that really stinks. That really stinks. What did that feel like to 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 have that conversation with her today? And and the same goes for this. And what what we want parents to think about with these benches is, sit next to your child on the bench don't even feel like you need to move them and don't feel like you need to take their hand and drag them over to the happy bench, right? Stay with them on this bench and you don't get up until they get up. It should be that you're sitting on the bench by yourself, not them. Because what's worse, and again, Becky Kennedy says this all the time, what's worse than than the actual feeling and the situation that you're in is feeling alone in the feeling. So if your child is sitting on the bench alone, then they can't make sense of the feeling. They think that the feeling is not okay to have. If we immediately jump to problem solving, and I'm thinking even of what you just said, Lauren, like, well, you're 350, so like, what did you eat today, right? That's jumping to like, let's figure this out instead of like, ugh, you must really not feel so good right now. Like, how do you, probably physically and also emotionally, right? Yeah. And and knowing that it's okay to feel that way is what's actually going to be more um, helpful to to our to our children. So well said, so well said. And I think there's no parent who's perfect, right? And there's no, right, but these, and you're gonna make mistakes. And I always say my my parents, I think they were absolutely incredible in how they, you know, created or allowed me to build resilience in my life because of diabetes. And yet I can think of probably 10, 15 things that I would tell you and you would be like, oh, they should have probably said it that way or they should have probably said it that way. So I don't think the goal is, is for you to have to be a perfect parent or a perfect person with type 1 diabetes. I, I personally think, and I want to hear, you know, what you're, what you, what you think, but I think the outcome and what we're really searching for is to have, is to have peace with our diabetes, to have grace, to know that it's not going to be perfect, but to just lean into diabetes enough that it doesn't take away from your life or the things that you want to do, but you're giving it enough attention so that it also doesn't take away from your time and your energy and all those things that we want out of life. Yeah. I mean, I I, I couldn't have said it better. I think that, you know, acceptance is, is a process but i and i also think it's it's fluid right like i like i shared personally there's there's ups and downs it comes and goes and it's like you said keeping it keeping it high enough on your list but maybe like not at the top of your list every single day and having it be present because it's it's literally present like you have your pump you have your fingers all those you know it's it's everywhere but being able to to balance it in a way that it can be there and not and not in your face i guess all the time that wasn't so eloquently said but 
what you said. No, that was, <laughs> I think that was great teamwork. We got the point across. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we did it. All right. To end out, I've been asking guests this question. So are you ready? How do you reclaim your rise as a T1D? Reclaim my rise as a T1D? Do I just interpret that question? Like, I can give you, I... let me give you more context since this is like okay. the early episodes. So for more context, the rise with diabetes is very, you know, A1C is up, bad, numbers up, CGM alarms up, bad, 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 right? But to rise is also this wonderful thing of reclaiming, you know, ownership of your diabetes, rising above your diagnosis, rising above your challenges, taking what's given to you and deciding that you're going to look at what's possible and not what's limiting you. And so um, that's kind of what Risely, you know, where it comes from. So how do you reclaim your rise as a T1D? I just want to say for the record, that is how I was going to interpret the question. <laughs> but I didn't want to just give a response that made no sense. <laughs> Whatever response you have is is good. I think that the way I would respond to that is kind of looking at where I've been over the last few years, where I've where what I've done. Um, meaning, you know, I've I'm building a family and I have a career and I've had diabetes all along the way, right? I I've actually gotten better at yoga, believe it or not, um, while having diabetes. So I think that live, you know, continuing to it sort of connects to the last question, but continuing to to take on new challenges that are not diabetes related, but living with diabetes and doing it kind of in conjunction and and learning how to do all of these things with with it there. Um is how I has how I reclaim my rise. Did that answer the question? I think it did. Okay, I good. think <laughs> I think it did. We'll we'll accept that answer. No, that was that's wonderfully said, and I think that so many people can relate to that. And and it doesn't have to be this big immaculate. I clown I climb Mount Everest with diabetes. It's just the little things sometimes are things to celebrate, and they become the big things when they count compound. So. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was such me. a pleasure. I we could have talked for you know so much longer. For any parents who are listening, uh, Dr. Alana is in our family group coaching program. We're currently running around right now that is live, but our next one is going to be in fall. It is an eight-week program for parents of T1D children who are really just struggling and need support. And um, that information we will put in the show notes below. And then for any other T1Ds who are um, listening to this and really resonated, you can check out the Cornerstone classes on the Risley site that Dr. Um, Alana helped build out around um, acceptance in T1D and burnout and type 1 diabetes. And Dr. Alana, is there any anywhere else you want people to follow you or any, anything else that you want to plug? Well, I have to say so much of my technology advancements have been because of you. Um, <laughs> not my strength. I am on Instagram, Dr. Dr. Alana Dumont, Dr. Alana Dumont. And my website is also DrAlanaDumont.com uh, for my private practice. So, yes. so for anybody in New York, York, you it's within state. So if there's anybody in New York listening who is looking for, um, you know, uh, resources for mental health and, um, you know, definitely go and look at Dr. Alana's website. But thank you everyone for listening. And thank you so much for coming on. And hopefully you'll be back on a future episode and we could dive into you know anything else that anyone else is requesting absolutely thank you for having me bye bye